0: All right, grab your Bibles. We're going right into it this morning. John chapter 21, verses 18 to 23. It's true what Adam said. We're down to just the last couple of passages in this amazing book. And next week, what we're going to do is is we're going to cover, we're going to go back over all that we have learned together and walked through over the last three plus years in the Gospel of John. We'll look at his whole purpose for writing uh, so it's going to be a great Sunday. Don't miss it. Also, we'll talk about our next preaching series, which will be in the Old Testament. So that's, a, that's what we call a teaser. So uh, don't miss church next Sunday. All right. Last week, we covered this very well-known and powerful exchange between the risen Christ and his glorified state walking down the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee with everybody's favorite disciple, Simon Peter, right? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then care for my sheep. Three times Peter is asked to confirm his love for Jesus, one for each of the three denials. And this was the Lord's way of publicly restoring Peter to fellowship in front of the other disciples so that moving forward, there would be no doubt about his status in terms of fellowship with the Lord. And after each time he professed his love, Jesus then commanded Peter, again, three times, to care for his sheep, the sheep that the chief shepherd would entrust to him, which was a pretty big deal. Now, I don't know if you've uh, considered this before, but this is a good time to talk about it, just how big the mission was that Jesus was handing to these 11 men in this moment. And as we've seen, they're pretty ordinary guys, but Jesus is handing this mission off to them. Soon after this exchange in Galilee, the Lord is going to gather with his guys one more time in Jerusalem before he ascends to heaven. And he is going to command them, first of all, do not leave the city until what I have promised you is fulfilled, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria, and get this now, even to the most remote parts of the earth. Can you imagine how big that vision is, how big that mission is? For these guys, these 11 guys, some of them were just fishermen, right? And yet, here is the mission I'm handing off to you. You're going to spread the news about me to the far corners of the known world. It's huge. And think about this, Peter's just been told to do what? Tend and to shepherd. So initially, what this mission's gonna be is about witnessing, right? It's gonna be about preaching the gospel, but soon, it has to turn into more than that because when you preach the gospel and people come to know Jesus and, and, and people get rooted in saving faith, what is required? The planting of churches, right? The, uh, uh, the uh, finding elders to, to, to lead those churches, Right? And then to care for all these new converts that would be coming from a pagan lifestyle into the Christian faith. I can't even imagine how big a job Jesus is talking about in that moment. The remotest parts of the earth tend, care, preach, establish elders, you know, shepherd, counsel, all of it for these very ordinary men. Now, last Sunday I said I was going to squeeze in one last map before we finish the Gospel of John. But guess what? I've got a few more today. I found a way to squeeze them in. And I, and I thought I would, just, I would just put this map up here to show you what I, the point that I just made. Okay, so this is, this is the, the known ancient world at that time, right? The green, I guess that's sort of green, is the, is the Roman Empire. You see how broad it is surrounding the entire Mediterranean Sea. The blue dot down there towards the bottom is Jerusalem. That's where this is happening, That's where, that's Israel, that's where all this is going. But every red dot on there that you see is a known Christian community, and there were probably more that we're not aware of, a known Christian community just in the first century, in the lifetime of John the Apostle. I mean, are you serious? So moving from west to east, you've got Rome and, and a couple other cities there in Italy, to Macedonia and Greece, across the Aegean into Asia Minor, right? And then down into Syria, south into Israel. And of course, even south of Israel, you've got Egypt and you have North Africa. Imagine starting from that blue dot and then seeing the church spread out that much in a hundred years, in the lifetime of John the Apostle. It's remarkable, isn't it? So listen, I I thought about this last night as I was, again, thinking about what Jesus is laying on these guys before he ascends, and I was thinking, you know, I have a little bit of experience in, in preaching and church planting and shepherding, and it's, it, it takes everything that I have all of my life just to oversee this one local body in Stevenson Ranch, and then I look at that, and it just overwhelms me. It's absolutely amazing. Okay, I just want you to see that because... Man, it's, it is, it's supernatural, right? Only God could do this. And, and of course, that's why Jesus says, wait until you have power, because it's the Spirit that is gonna drive all of this. But wow, what, what a vision. Okay, back to our story in the Sea of Galilee. Before the Spirit comes, before this great mission is launched, Jesus has a few more things to share with Simon Peter. And if you look at the first phrase in verse 18, you can see that what the Lord is about to do is, is prophesy about the life and death of Peter. Peter. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever Jesus leads with that phrase, you can be certain that what he's about to say will come to pass because he has the sovereign authority to make it come to pass. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, Peter, you used to gird or dress yourself and walk wherever you wished. You guys got to do that this morning, right? You dressed yourself, I assume, and you walked wherever you wished. You came to church. Good job. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you or dress you and bring you or lead you where you do not wish to go. And that phrase, stretch out your hands, in the ancient world was known as a synonym for crucifixion. This idea that your hands would be stretched out across a a crossbeam and either tied or nailed to that crossbeam. Verse 19, this confirms that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Now, as we've done throughout the series, this is a good moment to, to try to lift the text off the page and think, what was Peter thinking and feeling in this moment? Put yourself in his sandals. What is he thinking? Would you not be stunned if you were in the presence of the Lord and he prophesied about your death? That's wild to think about, right? But there's not enough time for him to process all that's going on because the Lord keeps talking. John says, and when he had spoken this, Jesus said to him, what? Follow me. So how would you react in that moment? Jesus prophesies, tells you how you're going to die, at least some detail, right? But then says, but in the meantime, follow me. Well, how's Peter going to react? Based on what we've seen of Peter in the last, what, seven chapters or so, there's probably a 70-30 chance he's not going to react well, because <laughs> we've, we've seen who Peter is. And guess what? He doesn't. Rather than say, okay, Lord, I trust you. I will follow you. You just show me where to go, and I will follow you. Peter immediately deflects and starts being concerned about the other disciples, Isn't this interesting? Verse 20, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And who's that? That's John, the one who also had leaned back on on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? Just in case you needed to be sure, we're talking about John. Verse 21, so Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Lord, what about John? Doesn't he have to suffer like I have to suffer? If I've got to be crucified, surely he'll be crucified. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter, that is none of your business. You be concerned about you and the mission that I have for you. Verse 23, therefore, this saying went out or this rumor spread among the brethren that the disciple would not die. That's John. Yet Jesus did not say to him he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Okay. Wow. So interesting, interesting uh, part of the narrative here. It brings up something that we don't often talk about in the church. We're going to do it this morning. It's death. It's death, right? And this is the beauty of expository preaching, right? You go through a book from beginning to end, eventually hard subjects come up, and we say, well, we should stop and deal with this. So let's talk about death. And the Bible has a lot to say about death. And the one thing that dominates the discussion about death in the Bible is God's sovereignty over it. In fact, in in the book of Job, in chapter 14, Job opens up to his friends about the nature of humanity. And Job says, man's days are determined. And that word in the Hebrew refers to the eternal decree of God. Man's days have been decreed by God. And then addressing the Almighty, Job says, the number of his months is with you, Lord, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. In other words, he can't go beyond those limits because you have set them. They've been determined. So when will you die? When the Lord says so. You will die when that day... That the Lord knows and is fixed comes to pass. He has fixed a number for each one of us. I did the math last night in my life. How many days has the Lord given me so far? 21,870. I feel pretty blessed, right? 21,870. And I have to tell you, this topic is super timely. This discussion is happening around my house all the time because next month I turn 60. I don't know why you're cheering that, but uh, okay. Uh, so I turned 60, which for a long time before I turned 50, I thought that was just really, really old. That is, you're, you're heading towards death old. And now I don't think it feels quite like that. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. I am at peace with it because I know and trust that God is sovereign over every single night that I lay my head down on the pillow and every morning that I wake up with breath in my lungs that he has decreed it to be so. And on a personal level, I've asked the Lord to, to keep me as healthy as strong, and strong as possible so that I can work and teach and shepherd into my later years. And now I'm, I'm in this process where I'm trying to cooperate with him in that by taking better care of myself and trying to get some actual sleep uh, and some exercise and doing all that because I want to be as faithful as I can be for as long as God allows, Right? And so we cooperate with the Spirit in that. To be as faithful as I can be, According to his, ultimately, he is going to decide all those details. And so while I have desires and I know what I would want, but I have to leave that up to the Lord. It's my job to simply trust his will and to do the very same thing that he commanded Peter in this text to do, and that is just follow him and to be faithful. And so for me, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is a great comfort. And it should be for all of us to give us a sense of peace that that, that accidents don't actually happen, that tragedies don't actually happen that are outside of God's control, but that he is sovereign over it. He's numbered our days and our weeks and our months and our years. It means that none of us are gonna be taken away without his sovereign permission. Now, I think that's an important thing to say. It often gets said at funerals, but it should be said now, that none of us gets taken away without his sovereign permission. And even if that day is earlier than we expected or it's earlier than we would have hoped for, we can always trust in this promise in Romans 8, right, that, all, that God causes all things to work together for good. Even, even in death, for those who trust in him, for those who love him, that are called according to his purpose, God is working all things together for good. And so we even, we even affirm that at funerals for younger people when they pass away, right, that God has a purpose in that, has a plan in it. And then we watch to see how he works through it, as hard as it is. So, sovereignty. Now, after that, there's two more principles about death in the Bible that I just want to briefly mention this morning. And the first one is this, and this one's obvious. For those of us who are found in Christ, dying is actual gain. To die is gain. That's straight from Philippians 1. Dying is to our advantage, right? So the threat of death has been taken away. That that tool that the enemy loves to fling in our face as human beings, that The whole sting of it has been taken away because for us, it's an advantage to die. It's actually our greatest victory. That's why we often talk about it being we graduate into the next part of life, right? Because we're going up in every way, right? We get to depart from this sinful world. We get to leave these corrupted bodies behind. And we get this new glorified form that is fit for all eternity to spend with the Lord forever. That is a huge victory. But... Having said that, there's another truth that I think is super obvious that we don't actually talk about a lot, and that is that there's real pain that goes with death, that, that experiencing death could also end up being very physically unpleasant, or worse, filled with great pain and suffering. And, and we have Jesus as an example. He didn't die without suffering and pain, so our Lord modeled this. This, this is the way we could go. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that possibility. In fact, Peter's death is prophesied to be brutal and and painful and filled with suffering. Look what it says. Jesus says in verse 18, he says, people are gonna lead you where you don't wanna go. Peter, you're not gonna wanna go there. Why? Because it's really unpleasant. The day that God has assigned for you, Peter, is not going to be something you look forward to. You're gonna be forcefully hauled off and although you know that I'm going to be waiting for you on the other side, it's still in your humanness going to be very, very hard. And you're not going to want to suffer and die in that way. By the way, and by the way, these, again, these men are not superheroes. If there were any other way, we'd start to question: like, how is that reality that, that they weren't afraid, that they, they didn't actually feel pain or suffer? This is the reality. This is, look, death is a consequence of the fall. Is it not? So there's pain and suffering, not just for the person dying, but for those left behind who grieve. Now, we don't grieve the same way the world does because of the hope that we have, but we still grieve. So there's pain that goes with this, right? The Bible gives us all kinds of examples of saints who suffered short, difficult lives filled with persecution, and yes, painful deaths. And again, I'm so grateful we have these examples. Otherwise, if everybody in the Bible had these perfect lives and they died super peaceful deaths, we'd look around and go... The world doesn't make sense to us. But instead, we have examples to say, okay, we get it. We understand the fall. We understand the consequences of the fall. And we understand the joy of being found in Christ so that we don't grieve like the rest of the world. The great faith chapter of Hebrews, chapter 11, testifies listen, some faithful believers went about in sheepskins and goatskins. Look at your clothes this morning. You feel pretty good about them? They were destitute afflicted poorly treated they wandered around in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground the next time we get whiny about where we live right some experienced mockings and scourgings others chains and imprisonment still others were stoned to death sawn in two put to death by the sword so you and I should take note of this as we look into the future and we, we see on the horizon the real possibility of persecution in our day. We should be able to acknowledge that there is a very real cost to say to saying, I love God. A, a cost to saying, I follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. There's a cost to that. Those who profess that now, but their faith isn't genuine, they're going to turn away in the day of decision. When the pressure comes and the threats come, they'll turn away. But for those of us whose faith is genuine, we will stand firm in the hour of trial as the great people in Hebrews 11 did because God will give us that strength to stand and endure those trials. So there'd be a great separating of the sheep and the goats, right? When the pressure comes, when the persecution happens. So I always tell people, look, the Bible gives us all these examples of people that suffer greatly and die painful deaths. For the sake of Christ, are you ready we're like, wait, hold on, we're Americans. <laughs> you know, that, that's not our lot. Well, maybe, maybe it will be. I, I'm, not, I'm not predicting the future, but maybe it will be. So I warn people, get this issue settled in your heart now while we have the freedom to worship, while we have the freedom to, to preach the gospel openly. Get it settled now so that in your lifetime, if persecution does break out, first of all, you won't be taken by surprise But second, you'll stand firm in that day, even if it requires a painful death. Hard, right? Paul, who faced death many times, right? This is what he said about it in Philippians 1. I'll put it on the screen. It was his expectation and hope not to be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness that Christ would be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. What a model for us. Whatever God has for us as we follow him, whether that's abundant life or that is painful death, that we would not be put to shame because we stand firm in the day of decision. Now verse 19 makes it clear that we should seek to glorify God in our death. We should seek to glorify God in our death. But can I tell you the best way to do that? The best way to glorify God in your death is to follow him now. Follow him while you're alive on the earth now because if we consistently seek to submit our lives to his lordship and obey his commands now when the day of our death comes, we'll be prepared to die well. That, that's, I, I mean, I, I don't want to be a pessimist here this morning, but that's part of the testing of this, this life on earth. We are preparing to die well and then to enter into our reward because that's, that's where our true home is. But boy, we get really rooted down here, don't we? We want to die well. No matter how that happens, we want to die well. Okay, so in this text, what does Jesus tell us then about Peter's future? Well, certainly he's not going to live the so-called American dream that we love so much. This idea that we, we hit a certain age and then we are entitled to retire and to cash in our pension and run off to play golf <laughs> or, or to pursue whatever hobby we love. No, Peter is going to labor in kingdom work, right until the last day of his life on earth. Ultimately, he's going to die as his master died, tending lambs and shepherding sheep and faithfully preaching the good news of the gospel. Because for Peter, time was short. And as we saw on the map, the mission is great. Time is short and the mission is great. So complete devotion to his calling was necessary. I guarantee you, he never forgot these words that he heard that day on the the shore of Sea of Galilee. Never forgot him. And it drove him. And we'll see later on where it led him to when we look at some of the things he wrote in his first letter. He never forgot it. It's a life of denial of self and a commitment to the good of others. And this is how the Bible describes the Christian life. And here's the thing that sometimes shocks people in America. That vision of what it it looks like to follow Jesus, it's It's not just apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. It's every single man and woman who's saved by God's grace. That's our calling. We want to push that off to the professionals, but it's for every single person. For us, it's not about retiring and pursuing earthly rewards at every age, but especially when you've grown old, it's about more than ever loving and serving and sacrificing. It's about fighting the good fight right up until the last breath persevering in the faith so that you die well and enter into the joy of of the Lord. Again, that's becoming more and more real to me every single day. That's our calling. Jesus was so clear about this, and we don't like reading these words I'm about to read because to us it seems too radical. But Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He must deny himself and take up his cross, which leads to what? Death and follow me. But the promise that comes with that is equally clear. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and that is our reward. Ultimately, that's what we're, that's what we're shooting for, right? That reward. Look at, again at verse 18. Jesus does give Peter some good news in the text. He says, you're gonna grow old. I mean, right? Look for the silver lining here. Yeah, you're going to be crucified, but you will grow old. (laughs) I mean, and and by the way, old compared back then and ancient world compared to today, very different. Most scholars will tell you that in the Roman Empire, unless you belonged to the aristocracy and had all the benefits of life, you were lucky to live past 35. Right? Sometimes we forget in history, and this is just an aside, how young many of the great historical figures. Were, because they didn't live very long. Alexander the Great invaded the Persian Empire at the age of 20. He led the greatest army in the history of the world at 20. How old are you guys? (laughs) Right? Genghis Khan conquered most of Asia at the age of 21. Charlemagne ruled over most of Western Europe by the time he was 26. And these guys said, well, I've lived half my life by then. It's interesting, right? But Peter's going to get to grow to be an old man. And, and by that, most historians believe he died in his early 60s. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? In his early 60s. But he also had to live, get this now, for about 30 years under the shadow of that prophecy, knowing that there was a day coming in his future when he was going to be arrested and led off to a very painful death. By the way, we talked about this in the very first Sunday in John. What year is John writing this? Somewhere around 90? So Peter's already dead when John's writing. In fact, Peter's been dead about 25 years by the time John actually writes this down. So what exactly happened to Peter? Well, there's a number of mentions that we have in church history that can sort of help us piece together the when and the how of how he died. He himself implies in his second epistle that he's close to dying and that the Lord has prepared him for this. In the opening 11 verses of, of, his, of his letter, the second Peter, he exhorts his lambs that he's been shepherding. All the lambs he's been shepherding in Asia Minor, and we'll show you a map on that in a second. He exhorts them to live faithful, godly li- lives. And then he says this. He says, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling. Right, and, and that... Man, that, that should be sort of the perspective we have. As long as I live in this earthly tent, I'm going to be busy with kingdom work. So as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, he writes, as also our Lord Jesus Christ had made, has made clear to me. So the Lord had made that clear in his heart. And I will also be diligent that any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. So this is a man writing you know, on his, close to his deathbed and reflecting on all the lambs that he's been shepherding. Now we have some strong evidence in church history about Peter's death, that he was executed during Nero's persecutions in the Roman Empire around the year 64 to 66, which Nero's persecutions are well documented, so we know that, that it's true. We know that Nero set fire to Rome, ordered it set, set to fire in the year 64 because he wanted to rebuild the city, and why not? So he he burned it to the ground, and then he had to blame somebody other than himself, so he pointed to Christians and used them as a scapegoat. And so he went out and had a whole bunch of Christian leaders arrested and brought to Rome for execution, including both Peter and Paul. Clement, one of the earliest bishops in the city of Rome, wrote a very famous letter around the year 96. Think about that. Very early, 96, still within the lifetime of John. Okay? And along with the Didache, it ranks as the oldest surviving document outside the New Testament canon. And it is a fantastic source of information. We have a very early manuscript, second century manuscript written in Latin. So it's, it's verifiable and it's, it's chock full of great details, including, you'll love this, Clement in that very early letter cites passages of scripture from nine different New Testament letters. So if you ever had doubts, doubts about the canon, Clement gives us a ton of information. In citing these nine these nine different books. But in this letter Clement mentions the death of both Peter and Paul. He calls them martyrs. He doesn't talk about the exactly when, he doesn't even talk about the method of their execution, but he does call them martyrs. Four other church fathers, just to give you some dates and all that in terms of witnesses, confirm that Peter came to Rome and was and was uh, executed there. Ignatius of Antioch around 110, Irenaeus in 180, Tertullian of Carthage, about 195, and a man named Dionysus of Corinth, who around 200 is very explicit that both Peter and Paul had been teaching in and around Italy, both were dragged to Rome, and they were, he says they were executed together. Now, by that, he probably meant within the same persecution that Nero launched during those years. So we have some really good detail on this. And then there's Eusebius of Caesarea, who's often called the father of church history, writing later about the year 325. And he reports that Peter was crucified. He also tells us, by the way, that Paul was not crucified, that he was beheaded. And that fits with the historical framework because Paul was a Roman citizen and it was illegal for Rome to crucify citizens. So he was beheaded, which sounds much better to me than being crucified. Now Eusebius also passes along an apocryphal story that you've probably heard because it makes for such a great ending to the story, but I don't think it's real, and that is that that Peter demanded to be crucified upside down because he didn't he didn't he thought it was be he was unworthy of dying in the same way that Jesus did. That's probably apocryphal, so don't put your trust in that i I would just simply say that. There's, there's very strong evidence that Peter was crucified exactly as Jesus prophesied he would be in the normal way. Make sense? Okay, what about John? Let's talk about John. Look at verse 23 again. John debunks this rumor about himself that apparently had been circulating among the churches, that he would not die before the Lord returned. And so he basically clarifies, he says, guys, I di- Jesus did not say that. You have this wrong. Have you ever tried to run around trying to fix a rumor Stop it. Everybody stop saying that. Jesus did not say that. What he said was, if I want him to still be alive on the day I return, what's that to you, Peter? Okay? But we know how people run with stories, right? Even back then. So it was in no way a prophesy that John wouldn't die at all or that Jesus would come back in his lifetime and it's reasonable that he would want to sort of snuff out this rumor because when he's writing, he's an old man, and he would not want to give any of his enemies any reason to gloat to say, "Hey, why hasn't Jesus come back yet, old man?" So he just he just sets the record state straight and snuffs out that false rumor. So what do we know about John's death? Well, like Peter, we do have some reliable bits of information about John's death. First we have, this is so great, eyewitness testimony from two men who were disciples of John. That's very direct. that would be like one of you guys writing about my death, right? You'd be like, I I walked with that guy. I, I sat there and listened to him preach. Okay, two guys, Polycarp of Smyrna and Ignatius of Antioch sat under John's teaching. And then Irenaeus was a student of Ignatius. So there's this chain going on and we have all kinds of interesting details. We know that John was exiled from, uh, uh, because of his faith. He says so in the Bible, Revelation 1.9. He says, John, I, John, your brother, and partner in the affliction, in the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called what? Patmos, right? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was exiled to Patmos because of, of his testimony because of Jesus. Now, how did that come about? Well, we know. There's there's pretty good evidence. Remember, Jesus, while hanging on the cross, gave John an assignment, didn't he? He said, care for my mother. So there's, there's pretty good evidence that Mary died about 15 years after Jesus was crucified and that John stayed with her in Jerusalem until that time, watching over her as he had promised. That's about the year 48. And then he went off into ministry in Western Asia Minor and he stationed himself in Ephesus where Timothy was still pastoring that church. So we have a sort of a coming together of two great, great saints. And then there's good evidence that John went out and began to plant churches. In fact, there's a reason why in the book of Revelation, he's told to write letters to certain churches, all of which were in Western Asia Minor, because he would have had a hand in either planting or building up those churches. Including more, right? So Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and of course Ephesus, where he's stationed. But we know that there's, there were churches in Miletus and Troas and Myra and other places as well. John likely had a hand in all of those things. But then things take a turn for the worse. In the year 81, a man named Domitian becomes emperor of Rome. Now, Domitian was the younger brother of Titus, who was the man who laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temples. This is a bad family. This is not a friendly family. And Domitian was a committed worshiper of the Roman gods, and he hated Christianity. So he ordered a number of Christian leaders be arrested and to be executed, including John. So John was sent from Ephesus to Rome, and Domitian planned a uniquely painful way for John to die. Again, going back to that theme, sometimes It's physically unpleasant. He wanted to burn him to death in a cauldron of boiling oil. Yikes. But guess what happened? According to sources, John was supernaturally spared. Injured? Absolutely. He could not, he would not die. Imagine the pain. But he wouldn't die. And Domitian being a a superstitious Roman then became afraid of John and afraid of John's God and said, you know what? I'm not going to execute him. I'm just going to put him out of my sight and banished him to this little island that was known for its mines. He basically became a slave, a slave in the mines on this place called Patmos. So I don't want to execute him. I just don't want to see him. And so he sent him off. Let me give you some maps. You love it, right? And I put this up, this is, now this is Asia Minor, okay, Turkey today, and you see there, see all those red circles? Those are the places that Peter writes to. So read the first verse in 1 Peter, these are the regions he's writing to, to Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus, that, those were where his lambs were when he was ministering. The, the yellow, the star is where Ephesus is, and there are the other six churches of Revelation, all congregated there in Western Asia Minor. This was John's territory. So between the two of them, they had, and plus what Paul had already planted, you know, they had it, they had it nailed down in Asia Minor. So where is Patmos here? Ready? Boop. <laughs> it's a little tiny island in the middle. I mean, when you get banished there, you get banished. It's not far from Ephesus, but it is in the middle of the Aegean Sea, and that's where... That's where John is going to end up. Now, in God's sovereignty, Domitian was assassinated by his own court officials in the year 96. And a man named Marcus Cocceius Nerva came to power and Nerva released John, apparently because of his old age. And John came back to Ephesus and then went out in his final years ministering to all of these churches that he had already had a hand on. He's the only one to die a peaceful death. John is the only one of the apostles to have died a peaceful death. Irenaeus writes this at the end of the second century. He says, all those in Asia who came into contact with John, the Lord's disciple, test, testify that John taught the truth to them for he remained with them until Trajan's time. We know from historical records, Trajan became emperor of Rome in the year 98. So this is a, a solid firsthand hand bit of evidence that John lived at least until then. It's possible John was 100 years old when he finally died. Amazing. Clement of Alexandria writes about the same time. He says, After the tyrant's death, meaning Domitian, who was an awful guy, John returned from the Isle of Patmos to Ephesus, and he went into the neighboring territories of the Gentiles, listen, to appoint bishops in some places and in other places to set whole churches in order and elsewhere to put into the ministry some of those who were pointed out by the Spirit. Can you imagine being this busy in your late 90s, almost 100 years old, still laboring for the kingdom, still loving the local church, refusing to retire, but working right until his last breath. Amazing man. Now, there's a couple of really practical lessons that we can extract from this seemingly innocuous narrative about Peter and John's future. Two things I want to share with you. Look back at verse 19 for a minute. Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And what does Peter do? He turns around and says, well, what about that guy? <laughs> right, Peter showing his impulsiveness and his immaturity at this point, right? And look, I get it. Maybe he's thinking to himself, Lord, why are you singling me out? I mean, I know he denied you three times, but but we're past that now, right? And now here you are singling me out. What about the others, especially John? How many times have we seen almost a competitive spirit between Peter and John, right? Racing to the tomb, getting out of the boat, right? Well, what about this guy? If I have to die like that, why shouldn't he have to? Listen, here's the lesson for us. Peter's falling into the, the same sinful trap here that we all fall into at times. It's the comparison game the comparison game, right? Ugh, it's far too common in the church today, right? We have a tendency to compare ourselves to everybody about everything. We compare the possessions that we have. We compare our families to each other, especially our kids, the comparison game. We compare the homes that we live in and the cars that we drive and the clothes that we wear. We compare the vacations that we take. And so many more things. Always comparing. And of course, social media has made the comparison game that much worse. Oh my goodness, this wasn't around back in my day, right? It's made it so much worse. Now we measure our value based on how many followers we have and how how good our Instagram page looks and how many views and likes we get. Compare, compare, compare. And the danger is so obvious. If we don't start lifting our eyes off of off of earthly values and start looking to to the heavens, to that perspective, our, our hearts, which can be so easily deceived, they're so vulnerable, we can find ourselves grumbling about everything, grumbling against God. We can actually blame God for this, believing that, that God's showing favoritism, that he doesn't care for me like he cares for fill in the blank. He doesn't love me as much, right? In other words, we're saying God really, God, God isn't, sovereignly governing the world in a just way or a fair way because I feel, I feel ripped off because I don't have these things that other people have. God must care for them more than me. And then, and then if you really want to get dark, sometimes when we get in that mindset and we don't, we don't cut that off, which we need to address it, the first moment you feel yourself comparing, cut it off. But if we let it go on, we can get to the place where we're actually rooting for other people to stumble and fall. It gets dark, right? We want others to crash and burn. Oh, it's going to feel so good if that person who they're on their high horse, if they stumble and fall and they go through a hard time, then they'll learn what it's like to be me. And it gets dark and ugly. that kind of dissatisfaction and envy will wreak havoc in your spirit in your heart, in your worship, in your love for people, in your relationships in the body. And, I, and I, I'm just, I'm gonna tell you a really sad fact. This is very common even in pastoral ministry. Far too common, right? I see pastors falling into the worldly temptation of rivalry and competition all the time. Well, whose church is larger? How big is your building, Right? Whose book is selling the most copies? Who's been invited to speak at this conference or that conference? That stuff happens. And it's now happening in public spaces like on Twitter. It's shocking, right? And then there's pastors and elders in just in smaller churches like ours who are always looking at the bigger churches and all the resources and all the money they have and saying, well, why not me? I work just as hard as that guy down the street with the big building. So I have to guard my heart really carefully. We all do, but man, it's so easy to fall into the comparison game. By the way, it's not just pastors. Volunteers in the church get this all the time. I'm working so hard. I'm volunteering so much time. Why isn't she doing that? Ooh. Well, I know I could run that ministry better than he does. Well, if I have to get here early to set up chairs, well, what about that guy? I don't see him doing anything. There's a million ways to get petty and envious when we start playing the comparison game. But here's the thing. We are a body. We're a body with many, many parts, multiple moving parts, and each one of us has a role to play. And so the arm cannot compare itself to the leg. And the ear cannot compare itself to the mouth. And even if the eye is working really hard, it can't look at the little pinky and say, what are you doing? So if you ever feel yourself being tempted to fall into the comparison game, I want you to hear Jesus' voice in your head when he says, what is that to you? You follow me. Sound good? What is that to you? That's not your business. I'm sovereign. I love you. I have a role for you to play. You follow me. In the case of Peter and John, it's obvious looking back that God had two very different visions for their lives. So we have an example right here. Why did Peter have to die on a cross in his early 60s, but John gets to live a peaceful life into his late 90s? Why? It's not our business. God is sovereign over that. That's his call. What's the phrase now? It's above our pay grade to know that. Why did Peter write only two books of the Bible and John got to write five? John wins again, right? I mean, if we play this game, it gets so silly. Why did God give Peter and John different amounts of success in church planting and and shepherding? It's none of our business to know these things. It's our business just to be faithful to the calling that God has given to us and to use the gifts that he's given us, which are going to be different than other people, sometimes not as much as other people, and that's okay, Be faithful with what God has given you. Don't compare yourself. Don't compare your circumstances. Don't compare your ministries. It's not a competition. Amen? That brings me to the last point. Notice how twice in verse 19 and 22, Jesus' command is simple, follow me. Now what's interesting about that, um, he had said the same thing three years earlier to Peter, maybe on that same stretch of beach there at Tabga, where he said, follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. But the command here, same language, follow me, but it has such a deeper meaning now. Because at this point in the story, Peter is not that same naive fisherman he was three years earlier. Now he understands more of what it means to be an actual follower of the Son of God. And to Peter, it means that nothing could ever be the same again. He couldn't vacillate between Jesus and fishing anymore. It meant complete devotion, a radical new way of living. It meant giving up possessions, giving up his career, turning away from the world. It meant walking as the master walked. It meant serving as he served. It even might mean dying as he died. That's what it meant to follow the master. So what about us? That, that's, that's the question, right? What about, what about you? Hear Jesus' voice. You. In what I have for you, you follow me. What does that mean? What does that mean in your life? See, I think it's a huge problem in today's church environment. We all like to talk about Jesus as our Savior, and that's great, but we often say that because we love the blessings and the benefits that come with being saved. But what about following him as Lord? What does that mean? Can you articulate that? The title Lord implies... That he has possession of you. That you belong to him, not to yourself. And in the the world we live in today, we don't like that type of language. What do you mean? Who's the boss of me? Hold on. No, he has possession of you. The New Testament bears it out, right? He said himself, you are not your own, for you have been bought at a price. That means that he is Lord over all things and that's when we're facing trials and persecutions or when we're blessed in many many ways he is lord so there should be no fear in calling him lord you know why we don't have to fear that because i know that i know that feels like because we like to be independent we like to be the boss of ourselves we don't have to fear that because we know based on the character of god that he's not a tyrant Our Lord is not a tyrant. He's not a a tyrant king, right? He's good. He's gracious. He sacrificed himself for us. He's trustworthy. He's not the type of king like our government today where we're like, ugh, Washington, D.C., right? I just pay my taxes and, and just, that's it. No, this is, our king is our treasure. We delight in him. He's not some faraway king that just taxes us. We delight in Him. He's our treasure. But to belong to Him, to be His disciples, requires a radical decision, a change in purpose, in priorities, and choices. This is where so many people that I know today who profess to love Jesus, they haven't really understood what it means to follow Him. They say they trust Him, they say they believe, but they don't follow. And it's not that they don't love God in any way, it's just that there's a competing allegiance of self, that actually dominates their lives. And this is the very interesting very interesting, you know, line that we walk, right? Well, we say we love God, but ultimately what's driving our lives is self. And if it's self, then it's not Jesus. It's not true. And that's something we each need to to deal with because you cannot serve two masters, right? Will you follow yourself or will you follow Jesus? Listen, he made the penultimate statement about this in Matthew 10. Again, I'll put it on the screen. He said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Again, we're we're like, ah, don't show me that. I want to live in both worlds. I want to love Jesus and I want to worship him, but you know what? I want this too. And actually, I may want this more. And that's something you need to answer in your heart because what he's saying here is that our love for him has to be so great that everything else in our lives just fades into the background. Not that family's unimportant, not at all. It just fades in comparison to loving him. That's the priority. So it requires that we seek first the kingdom of God over everything else, over our agendas in life, our goals, our comforts, our desires, even our lives. Even our lives. And that's what Peter would eventually do. He got it. He would lose his earthly life for the sake of Jesus and in so doing, he would find life for all eternity. He got it. And as proof of this, and I'll wrap up with this, consider the growth and maturity that you see in Peter in his first letter. I mean, it's written all over it. I wish I had time. Maybe we'll go through First Peter someday. It's written all over the place that that knucklehead that we see all throughout John wrote that letter, the Spirit is powerful to transform. Remember the Lord's command, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. Look what Peter writes in First Peter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Look, he's literally going to say what Jesus said to him. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, that's care, not under compulsion but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter got it, eventually. By the time he was nailed to a cross in Rome in the year 64, he had become a man of humility and wisdom and patience. Not perfect, obviously not, right? But a man who heard Jesus say, Peter, don't worry about John. You follow me. And Peter did. He tended those lambs and he shepherded those sheep and when he breathed his last on that cross and you can maybe you can picture it in your mind breathing his last on that cross i have no doubt that the chief shepherd was waiting for him on the other side to greet him and to and to usher him into the heavenly realms and you can almost picture in your mind that that reunion of Jesus and Simon Peter right and the smile that must have been on Peter's face, the joy of seeing his Lord again and to hear Jesus who rebuked him and reprimanded him so many times to say, Peter, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our hope, isn't it? If so, follow him with all of your heart. Commit to do it today, to be like a Peter. You may not be perfect now, but the Spirit's powerful to transform. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I am so grateful this morning to read of your amazing grace for Peter and to consider the amazing grace that you've shown me in my life. And for my brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord, who need more grace each and every day. Father, I, I pray that by your spirit you would cause us to strive more and more to die to self and to turn from this world and to see the mission that you've given us as, as, as so great that we don't have time for foolishness. That we want to serve you with every breath that you give us. And we want to persevere to the end in faith and, and then cross over into your presence with that joy that I just described, Peter must have had. To hear you say, welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, may your spirit begin to do that work in our hearts. If there's any here this morning that don't know you, have not bowed their knee to you yet, Lord, would you cause them to do that this morning? Would you draw them to yourself in your grace and your love? And for those of us who are wavering between the world and between you, Lord, may your spirit help us to sort that out. Help us, Lord, to to see our need, to, to be transformed by your spirit, to commit ourselves wholly unto you, to stop comparing ourselves with one another, but to simply follow according to your calling and according to your will and according to the gifts that you've given us, Lord. Help us to do that well for your glory and for the good of our lives and the life of this church. And we ask all these things in the name of our good shepherd, the shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ. Amen.